0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod housing crunch. Why is there such an imbalance between our ability to build new homes and inviting new residents to BC? And from BC Fairy Woes to TELUS layoffs, Global BC's Keith Baldry recaps the weekend politics and business. And Coquette Lamaire Richard Stewart joins us to discuss the end of the single family home era, and our Friday rap panel discusses the week that was in pop culture. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show Podcast. The Today and look at the issue of immigration and housing. Now, recently we ran a few segments on this show we called I'm pro-immigration, but. Now the segments were based on a phrase that we're hearing increasingly in Metro Vancouver and, in many cases, other cities as well in Canada. Canadians now are generally supportive of immigration, but recently many people are expressing concerns about our high immigration numbers and the challenges surrounding affordability and housing. Our next guest recently helped pen an opinion piece uh, in the Orca looking at the disconnect between the amount of people moving to BC and how many houses and housing units are being built. Ken Peacock is the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President at the Business Council of BC, and he joins us now. Ken, thank you, to, thank you for speaking to us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to be with you.
0: So let's start with the basics. What are the numbers in regards to just people moving here and how many houses we're building?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, thanks for the uh, the, the comments off the top there. You're, you're, I think everybody, the audience knows that We do have a lot of people moving to Canada and, and to B.C., but we decided to take a kind of a, a closer look and see exactly what the figures are, and it's very startling. Um, last year, and when I'm saying last year is the last four quarters, so that includes the first quarter of this year and the previous three quarters of, of last year. But in that four-quarter period, 180,000 people moved into British Columbia. Um, wow. It, it, that it, That is a huge number. It's record. And, and just for some context for the listeners out there, that is equivalent to the population of Langley. Actually, the two, the two Langleys combined. So it's a, it's a huge number. Um, but just, just before I, I stop, uh, I just should go on there and explain it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. The permanent residents, we had 65,000 permanent residents come into BC. So they they moved in through the permanent channels, um, and and they stay here. Usually we get around 40,000. So you know, that's up about 1.7 times what it normally is. Where we really saw the jump was in the net non permanent category. And the non permanent resident category is mostly temporary foreign workers. And students, and we saw 114,000 net non-permanent residents moving to British Columbia over that four-quarter period. Wow. And That's kind of a factor of 10x what what is normal. So really, a lot of pressure there,
0: Jez. Uh, and how? And so, look, it doesn't matter what your designation is; you still got to find a home. You're going to need a roof over your head. Uh, what are we building in regards to housing in this province in that time?
1: Yeah. Okay. So that in the same year, the same four-quarter period. There was 43,000 homes completed. So they, um, yeah, 43,000. That's a high number. You, usually, kind of fluctuates. You know, over the past couple of dec- decades, it's fluctuated between 15,000 completions and 40, 43 being that the high mark in mm-hmm. 2022. Um, so, you know, a good way to look at this, is this is a good way to look at this and think about this, is if I look at the number of people coming in, the in-migration and the number of home completions, the ratio there is usually two to one. And if you go back a couple decades, and that's remarkably stable at two to one. Go up above two to one, so a little bit more immigration, not as much housing. That would only last a couple of years, and then the ratio would dip below. So there was kind of this... This, it would sort of self-calibrate and, you know, home construction would pick up when population growth picked up. Mm-hmm. But since 2017, we've been above that ratio of two to one every year, apart from the pandemic. So basically, we've been above that two ratio, two to one ratio for six consecutive years Uh, we haven't had that in the past this is brand new territory and it just speaks to this you know this cumulative falling further behind in terms of having enough enough housing
0: so where are we headed in this if you're saying you know it it would self-correct after a couple years and this has been going on uh, since 2017 in regards to this ratio that's above two to one i mean where are we headed here in your mind
1: it's a problem. Um, one thing I know for sure, well, a couple things. First of all, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to kind of build our way out of the housing unaffordability problem. That's just not going to happen. There's just so many other pressures, investors, you know, and there was a low interest rate, so many other facts. So I don't think we're going to be able to build our way out. But what is clear is with the current level of population, we are not building enough homes. Uh, that is absolutely the case. So, We are going to have to build new homes, and then I know know you're going to go there and ask me, how are we going to accomplish that? That is challenging. Uh, Just the sheer capacity, the ability to build more than 43,000 homes in the province when you think about workers, processing permits, and all that other stuff, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not sure we can get up to 50 or, or even 60 completions in a year to
0: be honest. Yeah. And I, and I I was looking at some numbers. I think that when we peaked in construction in this country in the early seventies, it was like 220 or 230,000 homes we built in a year, which I think would be still very difficult. We can hit it, but it's difficult. But I think we peaked in the early seventies. I mean, is it, I mean, as an immigrant, I'm asking this, do we think, do you think we need to cut back on immigration? If we can't build our way out of this, certainly because of a variety of reasons, whether it's uh, bottlenecks at the local level, uh, whether it's cost, whether it's lack of labor, uh, whatever it may be. I mean, I know we have an aging population. I think one out of four people will be over the age of 65 in this uh, this country by 2030. I get the numbers. But at the rate we're going, it's still not fair for immigrants to come to this country or uh, whoever you are, or if you're a native-born uh, Canadian and you move to another province, you can't find housing. I mean, is this a fundamental question? Does maybe we need to pull back a little bit on immigration for a moment?
1: Yeah, uh, <clears throat> One, that certainly would be worthwhile taking a closer look at, at the numbers. Uh, it's it's challenging. We're in this kind of circle, this difficult circle, Jag, because businesses clearly need workers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, vacancy rates are still high. They're not as high as they have been in terms of job vacancy rates. They're coming down, but they're still high. And I, I often you have people on your show all the time, uh, businesses saying they need people, they need people. So, it, you know, it's a little worrying cutting back too hard. What I think really the challenge here is just the disconnect between federal policy and what 's going on at the provincial level. So, you know what 's happening is the federal government has ramped up immigration and and, and these other targets and numbers, and they basically wash their hands after that. people come to Canada and they say, "Okay, go find a, a province to live in and, and you 're kind of on your own and I am very sympathetic to something you said a moment ago you know you, you have people immigrating you're coming here for new opportunities. And when you land and you can't find a place and the costs are exorbitant and maybe you have difficulty getting traction in the job market, uh, it can be very demoralizing. So uh, I'm very sympathetic to those comments.
0: uh, And I just want to step back a little bit. Uh, We had one of your colleagues on the other day, David Williams, in regards to productivity and standard of living. What does this all mean? I mean, uh, sometimes they're interconnected, sometimes they're not interconnected, all of this stuff. But uh, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, we're inviting all these people in, but there doesn't seem to be a core plan once they arrive, whether it be on housing. Uh, Whether it be, you know, are we inviting the right types of immigrants to this country? I mean, right now, from what you're seeing in regards to standard of living, productivity in this country, uh, our immigration policy, our housing challenges, I mean, are we headed in a... Where are we headed in the next 10 years if this is what's before us?
1: Yeah, if if the current trends, and some of which you just put your finger on, continue, uh, we are headed down a path of like falling prosperity. We will not be as well off in terms of average wealth, average prosperity uh, per capita GDP, what have you. Um, and it, it, the concern there really for me is as we kind of flounder and languish and maybe even fall in terms of our well-being and prosperity, our neighbors to the south are going to continue to grow and advance. So I, I, the gap widening is a concern. And then of course, just the sheer stagnation of prosperity, uh, it is a concern when economies aren't growing and when you don't have more resources on a per person basis. Uh, that creates challenges and difficulties and governments get into trouble funding uh, social services and whatnot. So the trajectory we're on right now is not is not good. Yeah. We are going to have to, governments are going to have to find ways uh, to kind of stoke and fuel productivity and, and that requires capital investment. But r- related to that is, uh, you know, by bringing in large a, a large workforce and giving um, businesses, uh, you know, a, a big number of workers and employees, uh, that kind of that takes away the incentive to invest in, in capital and maybe rely less on uh, labor. So it, 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 you kind of are dampening some of the productivity gains that you might otherwise get if we could – Just get a little bit of a realignment towards more capital investment and less labor. And then somewhat related to that, Jazz, Mm -hmm. is just because we need all this housing uh, in in B.C., we overinvest in residential housing. I know that sounds crazy Mm -hmm. because we don't have enough homes. But if you compare how much we spend and invest in building new homes in B.C., it's much higher than other provinces So that number is one of the reasons I said I'm not sure how many more homes we can build is because that proportion of the whole economy devoted to residential home building is already high and near record highs. Um, So what we actually do need to see is a little bit less uh, capital investment flowing into that residential, and I actually wouldn't want to see that diminished, but the flip side of that is more into the non-residential space, machinery and equipment and, and things like that. That is really... The key. Lots of work to do in that space, hard to do, but that really is the key at the end of the day.
0: Ken, thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful BC Day Long Weekend. Yeah, you as well. Thank you. Today, Stats Canada's Labour Force Survey came out for July, uh, and it it shows that uh, we are doing okay, a uh, 4,100-person increase in full-time jobs and 5,700 decrease in part-time jobs. That's 5,700 people. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the July Labour Force Survey is Brenda Bailey, Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. Minister, thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon. So in your mind, is this good news or are we still having some difficulties in a post-COVID environment?
2: Uh, Yes. (laughs) I would say that this is um, kind of a mixed report. Um, You've highlighted um, one of the positive aspects, 4,100 full-time jobs. And there are a number of others, including private sector employment, increasing by 6,000. Um, But we are seeing a mixed bag kind of depending on where you are in the province and which area of the economy you're measuring.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we've also lost about 20,000 private sector jobs over the last three months are so. Uh, what is your government doing in regards to uh, protecting and preserving those jobs and hopefully building more jobs moving forward? Because there have been, um, has been significant of talk of the impact it's had on our resource sector, the layoffs uh, in the Prince George area, Andrew area, but we have lost 20,000 private sector jobs uh, over the past three months under your government. Why is that?
2: Well, there's a number of different factors. First of all, um much of um, uh what's causing those losses are our global situation. Um we've certainly been impacted by uh interest rates, uh, inflation, supply chain chain challenges, and now wildfires as well. So there's a number of different factors that are impacting the economy. Um I will point out though that um from January to now, we have 32,000 full-time jobs to the positive, uh, as to the positive. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it's important, though, to talk about some of the challenging areas, and certainly, um, as you've rightly pointed out, we've seen you new know, curtailments in the forestry sector, mm-hmm. a number of different factors involved in that as well, including the lumber prices and housing starts in the US. Um, so we're doing a number of different things to address that. Um, I have in my ministry, for example, a program called the Manufacturing Jobs Plan. And this is a way for us to help forestry impacted communities have more diversity of opportunities within those communities. The Manufacturing Jobs Plan is money that can de-risk investments by private sector companies to expand manufacturing or to transition into manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's up to $10 million per project, a uh, maximum 20%. And we're starting to see those role right now. So to give you an example of how it can help forestry impacts communities, if you take a look at um, William's Lake, um, we've provided funding to a company called Massive Fair, which works in the mass timber sector. This is a really important sector for us. We've got a mass timber plan, and we're really expanding mass timber in the province. It allows more jobs per tree taken out of the forest in our sustainable forestry sector. And it's really focused on also um, GHD reduction in building. Mass timber is a a really interesting new value-added way to build that you're really quite finished on. So investing in communities that are transitioning into those types of um, manufacturing opportunities is one of the ways we're ensuring they're high jobs.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I understand where you're coming from, Minister, uh, but to my understanding, nearly 60% of all the jobs that have been added under your government since 2017 when they were first elected have been public sector jobs, and that's about 116,000, and uh, the private sector jobs have increased by 79,000. So nearly 60% of all jobs created since 2017 are government jobs. This is not sustainable, and that's the, going back to my original question, what else will your government be doing to make sure that those private sector jobs play a much bigger role moving forward? Because at the end of the day, you can't have government too many more government jobs than private sector jobs. The system doesn't work. What else do you think your government needs to be doing to make sure you increase that number of private sector jobs uh, being created in this province?
2: Well, we're doing a lot in regards to that, but I do want to push back on one of your assumptions, which is public sector jobs are negative, and I don't agree with that. I mean, public sector and you know speaking frankly there were a lot of cutbacks in public sector in the previous government mm-hmm. right? and that is health care and that is education and we're seeing the implications of that right now on the ground so these are very important jobs and i am very happy to defend public sector jobs we need more teachers we need more nurses we are expanding those fields because our communities are expanding and we don't have enough workers in those fields. So, mm-hmm. yes, we're seeing the growth in public sector jobs, and that's important. In this- regards to private sector, mm-hmm. what we know is that there has been a real impact on investment into private sector, and that's largely because of global factors. We're seeing that all across the world. This is not unique to British Columbia. So we've done a number of different things. We're really doubling down on promoting British Columbia as opposed to invest. We've got a tremendous, tremendous opportunity here. We have one of the strongest tech sectors. In fact, we have the largest, fastest-growing tech sector in North America, here in British Columbia, and we're investing further in it. We're doing things like investing in our biotech sector. We've got a very aggressive biotech strategy, probably most advanced in Canada, Mm -hmm. and we're ensuring that that sector continues to expand, which is what we're seeing right now. So we're not sitting back on our haunches watching these numbers. We're making investments and we're driving forward.
0: Yeah, And and this was an attack on the public sector. I I, I would agree with you. We need more doctors. we We need more nurses. We need more teachers. But to pay those salaries, you also need a strong and vibrant uh, private sector, which has been struggling for a variety of reasons. Some of it structural, some of it COVID related, all of those reasons. But at the end of the day, I just think that when you look at the basic numbers of public sector hiring versus private sector hiring, the private sector, public sector hiring is, is higher. And I just don't know how you sustain that in the years ahead. You need more private sector jobs, but let's go to the other core.
3: Which
2: is exactly why we're making the investments that we're making. You know, if you look at what we've done with Accelera, for example, it's a great example. Mm-hmm. We've done a direct investment of $75 million dollars. Unlock unlocked $225 million from the federal government, $400 million from the private sector partner for a $700 million campus, which is going to not only employ 500 people in high-level scientific and technology jobs, but provide an anchor company that can be attending in British Columbia and sticking in B.C. for years to come to ensure that this sector continues to grow. Those are the types of investments we're making into the private sector uh community
0: and we need to do more of it minister bailey thank you so much for your time and have yourself a wonderful uh, bc day long weekend
2: i wish you the same thank you very much for
0: having me on lots to talk about when it comes to politics and business uh in this province i thought it was time to catch up with our good friend keith baldry global bc's legislative bureau chief hello keith Yes. we got so many topics to talk about here. Uh, let's start with um, uh, the port uh, strike mm-hmm. and the tentative deal. Strike? There's no strike at the moment. There's a tentative deal, and there wasn't a tentative deal. And now uh, they're voting today, are they not? They're finishing voting.
4: So what is it, four, just after 4 now? So the voting ends at 6 o'clock. Uh, we should know the results around 9 p.m. I'm betting that it's going to be accepted. Um, because I think they know it, it, the minister has signaled it's inevitable. This strike is over. I mean, there's not going to be any more job action. Mm-hmm. The labor board has basically, the industrial relations board has ruled there cannot be any pickets. There's no job action. If, if the uh, deal is voted down, uh, the two parties have two days to make submissions to the board. And if the board feels. Uh, That A negotiated deal cannot be made at the table, and I think if this is voted down, they would conclude that, because I don't see any basis to conclude any uh, other than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seamus or Reagan, the Liberal Minister, has made it clear that they would then have two choices. Impose a new collective agreement, or send the contentious issues that haven't been resolved, which are particularly automation, and you know I've talked about these issues before and who has jurisdiction over maintenance work uh, whether it's contracting out or whether the union does that work that would go to binding arbitration so those are the two options the board has if the vote is rejected uh, tonight um, but I'm betting it's going to be accepted because uh, there's not much point in rejecting it when you know you're not going to be able to go back on strike anyways.
0: Yeah and that's that includes a 19.2% increase over four years as well so uh, a lot of good things there for them. And a well. $3,000 signing bonus. Yes exactly. It would actually
4: bring the median wage, which means as many people earn more than this number as earn below it, to $162,000 a year, up from 136000 by the end of that four-year contract.
0: Yeah. I, I don't think they're going to find much sympathy out in the, in the public, no. that's for sure. So, and our economy can't afford this uh, tentative de- deal or no-deal th- uh, conversation. So hopefully it'll be done tonight and we can move forward. Let's touch on uh, actually a segment that we aired an hour ago. We were speaking to Ken Peacock from the Business Council of BC, their chief economist. Uh, And he was talking about how our immigration numbers just don't add up when you take in housing starts as well and housing or homes that we're actually building. Uh, Take a listen to his comments in regards to the BC's population numbers.
1: We decided to take a kind of a a closer look and see exactly what the figures are. And it's very startling. Um, Last year, 180,000 people moved into British Columbia. Permanent residents, we had 65,000 permanent residents come into BC. So where we really saw the jump was in the net non-permanent category. And the non-permanent resident category is mostly temporary foreign workers and students. And we saw 114,000 net non-permanent residents move into British Columbia over that four-quarter period. Really a lot of pressure there, Jez.
0: So, Keith, 180,000 people have moved to BC in the last uh, uh, four quarters, so the past past last year. We have built just over 40,000 new homes uh, in that time. Uh, And as, as, uh, you know, uh, he was saying, Ken was saying, that generally we do have years where, you know, it's a two-to-one ratio in regards to population growth versus homes being built. Every couple of years that this does happen, it recalibrates, it resets itself, and it goes back to sort of the normal in this case, as Ken was saying, we've been above this ratio since 2017 and it continues to grow. I mean, I don't know how you get out of this beyond saying we're not going to build anymore, even though we talk about this. Well, really, the issue is perhaps less immigrants.
4: Well, I've been, this is one of my, I find this one of the more fascinating topics. I wrote a column, my weekly column was, I think, back in June 19th for Glacier Media on this exact issue are unprecedented levels of immigration, which are ostensibly being, workers being brought in to fill some skill shortages, which is, you know, that's great. And immigration does fuel the economy. But the number now is so, such a large number. Uh, it's putting enormous pressure on already two or three beleaguered pressure areas, housing and health care in particular. The demand for health care is through the roof because our population has exploded. And the and the number of aging seniors is is going up significantly as well. And housing is another one. As Ken says, this is unprecedented. We, we cannot build enough housing quick enough to match the immigration levels that are coming in. The Truro government has basically more than doubled the immigration levels. It's 500,000 a year now. B.C. is getting you know 130,000, I think, a year. Uh, 95% of the people coming into B.C. locate in three areas only. They don't go to Prince George or Fort St. John or Nelson. They go to the Okanagan, that's one of the smaller percentage in the Kelowna area. Uh, they come to the capital region in South Vancouver Island, and the bulk of them go to Metro Vancouver. And those three areas have the hottest housing markets in the entire country, and that's why they'll continue to be hot. And that's why the price of housing is not going down by any appreciable amount in the foreseeable future, because the demand will remain sky high because our population continues to explode. And it's not just housing, it's healthcare. You know, BC Ferries has more and more people wanting to travel BC Ferries because, partly because there's just that many more people living in British Columbia, and mm-hmm. the percentage travel. Well, if you've got a higher group of people, that percentage becomes a higher number.
0: Uh, and we'll touch on BC Ferries uh, and and what what an important important weekend this is. But just focusing on the immigration and housing issue, um, you know, when you hear these stories, uh, I worry that you know, I, I what I hear a lot in the lower mainland is I'm pro immigration, but. And I worry that this conversation about housing and affordability or health care, whatever it may be, leads us to make decisions that may have longer term repercussions on our country, which is let's cut, cut back on immigration and, and we cut back too much. Because I think by 2030, 20, 25 percent of the entire Canadian population is going to be over the age of 65. And I think it was at 11 percent uh, just about to 10 years ago so it's significant growth in the elderly population and we still need them but i I, there's a fundamental disconnect in regards to supply of homes and and uh, versus immigration
4: yes and and that gap is just going to get wider and wider unless immigration levels are reduced or the housing starts are increased and back to skill shortages there's only so many people out there who can build houses we have a, a shortage of skilled workers um, you know some mega projects slow down sometimes in construction because they just can't get enough workers it, finding skilled workers is a constant challenge and that applies to the housing construction sector as well i did a, i mentioned this to some to people from time to time I did a piece a number of years ago with the bc construction association mm-hmm. and they pointed out their retirement challenge was over a period of years the number of foremen and project managers were going to just were just going to disappear and that's uh, putting a crimp in construction projects. When you just can't come out of a trade school and run a project. You've got to have a number of years of experience to be foreman. And so we have a shortage of people like that, and that exacerbates a, a problem. So this, is a, this has been flagged by a number of us as a problem going forward. And, again, it's not to be anti-immigration, mm-hmm. but the, uh, your point, uh, you know, immigration but. And if the supports are not there in terms of the infrastructure, both for housing, uh, for services and for health care. Um, you're creating a problem where one didn't exist before.
0: We are speaking to Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry. We've been talking uh, about uh, BC's population number and, of course, our immigration numbers versus housing. Uh, lots of talk about there. We also know that longshoremen are, are uh, finishing their vote today in regards to the deal that was offered to them by the Maritime Association, hoping to hear from them in the early evening. Uh, let's talk a little bit, Keith, about uh, BC Fair a busy weekend for them, the busiest weekend is BC day long weekend. Nicholas the CEO, was on this show a few days ago. We talked a lot about what's transpired over the last two or three weeks, specifically in regards to the coastal celebration that had gone down. Take a listen to his comments.
1: What happened in the last week, and also, yeah, you're right. With the July long weekend, mm-hmm. we were really acutely affected by not having the coastal celebration in service. That took out a lot of needed capacity in our system. And I think customers felt that. We were all very frustrated. That represented, you know, 12,000 or so tr- passengers that we we couldn't service. Uh, and, and that was a challenge. So that ship has been repaired. Uh, we had to replace the seals on all the, repeller, uh, the propeller blades on the uh, number two hub. And that ship is going to be back in service, so that will give us the capacity we need, we desperately need to move. Like you said, 580,000 people are going to be sailing with
0: us this Mm -hmm. weekend. So that was from a few days ago, and as of now, looks like everything is moving along, and I hope it stays uh, that way for the entire weekend. Keith, um, the coastal celebration and the challenges ferries has had over the last few weeks also speaks, I think, to a desperate need to spend more money and a lot more money moving forward on, on some of these uh, vessels that do need to be replaced.
4: Well, indeed. And as uh, has pointed out, they've got a $5 billion capital plan. And maybe even, not, even that's not enough. But as we're seeing with the Coastal Celebration, that's a relatively new vessel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not an aging vessel. So if you end up getting the wrong vessel and it's got a, a part problem... Uh, or for whatever problem, I mean, this is not the first time the coastal celebration has had a, a, a main, an issue with uh, breakdowns or the rena- coastal renaissance. They n- don't seem to be as robust a vessel as the spirit vessels, for example. So capital plan only takes you so far. But you're, you're right, they do need more vessels, but uh, they need more capacity. And back to our population growth, you know, mm-hmm. almost a half billion people more have moved into B.C. in the last six, seven years. Uh, I think it's like 470,000 people. That's an enormous amount of people, and just like everyone else, they're going to want to take the ferry system from time to time. Um, You know, they're not not suddenly not going to be ferry users, and this population growth puts a squeeze on all services, whether it's again housing. Healthcare or the ferry service. So yeah, they have to build a lot more to keep up with the anticipated increase in demand in the coming years.
0: Do you see a time for another ferry terminal uh, on this side, uh, perhaps uh, in Richmond?
4: You know, that's a that's a very good idea. Uh, very good question. I remember when David Hahn first took over BC Ferries, he, he asked me, "He goes, can you explain to me why does Salt Spring Island have three t- ferry terminals, and Metro has two?" Um, which is sort of the, the vagaries of the system. And he, that didn't make a lot of sense. I think it's inevitable. You're gonna ha- they're, they're having real problems. Where there's been ongoing controversy trying to um, modernize the Horseshoe Bay Terminal. Uh, Tawasin is sort of stuck out there. Um, for those old enough to remember the old B.C. Uh, Tawasin Terminal, you used to have to park your car on the causeway and walk to the to the ferry, and sometimes that's about a mile long mm-hmm. before they finally built a parking lot. But I think they may have maxed out what they can do to us, and it's anyone who's uh, gone through there recently as a foot passenger? Mm-hmm. Unacceptable. The crowds you have to uh, navigate through, uh, it, it's just not big enough for the traveling public right now. I think more ferry terminals are likely, but exactly where they're going to be, be located, I'm not sure where.
0: Well, that is going to be the conversation. I, I mean, I'd love to have a, a, a bridge head over to, to, to Vancouver Island, but I don't think that's Never happening. happen. It's not going to
4: happen. A few people know the big problem with the bridge, the Georgia Strait, or the Salish Sea as it's called, is one of the deepest ocean trenches in the entire world. You cannot anchor a bridge to the bottom, and you can't have a floating bridge because those those seas are just too storm-tossed for about three months of the year.
0: Wow. Well, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, let's talk about the other big issue, uh, today, uh, in the news. That of course is 6,000 people laid off, uh, at TELUS. Uh-oh. Um, you know, when you, when you hear that, Keith, I mean, TELUS is generally a well-run company. It's done well, and it's not just in the, in the, the cell phone business or the home telephone business and the, it's in the TV business in regards to cable or, uh, their optic service. They're involved in healthcare. They're involved in agriculture. It's a very diversified company. Uh, I think this has a lot to do with it, a lot to do with actually reminding us that with these interest rate increases, that we are, you know, the economy is slowing. And whether it's a recession, a soft recession, or maybe we don't have a recession, it is nevertheless slowing. And these companies are sort of a canary in the coal mine.
4: Well, it's interesting. TELUS is not losing money, TELUS is making a lot of money, and they still decided to lay 6,000 people out. So their profits declined but they're still profitable. So in the last quarter, the second quarter, they made $196 million in profits, but that was down 61%. So the argument from the company is that hurts our cash flow situation. Mm. And a lot of that is to do with interest rates. So this is a profitable company that if they made the same amount of money in each subsequent quarter, will make $800 million this year, and yet still found fit to lay off uh, 6,000 people. I, sh- I think really no one saw this coming, even though other telecom giants, BCE, for example, just laid off 1,500 people across the country, and others are struggling with ch- uh, changing technology. But, yeah, the, the job survey came out today. BC's unemployment still dropped a bit. Unemployment dropped down to 5.4. It's down a little bit, mm-hmm. um, down about 0.2 percentage points, fourth lowest in the country. But um, And we added full-time jobs, but we lost part-time jobs which is probably one of those glass-half-full, half-empty things. But, yeah, the economy is going to continue to struggle, but it's still kind of smooth sailing with some bumps along the way, and TELUS was a big bump today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I had uh, uh, the minister of jobs on uh, at three thirty-five, and Minister Bailey, uh, Brenda Bailey, uh, talked about you know some of the jobs that were created here in British Columbia. I did have to remind her and we about the fact that look, a lot of these jobs are still government jobs. We still have created more jobs uh, by the NDP on the on the public sector side than the private sector side. Side, and I know with COVID there was a reason for that, uh, but you can't sustain. Uh, creating more public sector jobs and private sector jobs. You just can't over the long term. So Well most of those public
4: sector jobs are in healthcare. So that's yeah. one of the biggest growth areas. Almost eight thousand jobs. We need, according to the health ministry, thirty five thousand additional health care workers in the next five years alone because of retirements and the need for more services so the uh, public sector will continue to grow at a large rate but you're right the private sector we need job creation there that's what's going to sustain the economy going forward and again the job numbers it depends where you live you know two thousand jobs were lost in the northeast uh, corner of bc in the last uh, month so uh, as some of our resource operations contract a bit, that's where you're going to see some job loss. But in particular, uh, the forest industry is still in a lot of trouble and continues to be in a lot of trouble and likely will be for some time.
0: Yeah, we forget there's a tale of two provinces or three provinces sometimes. So it's uh, it is the economy is going to be uh, challenged and, uh, for for a while yet, that's for sure. Keith, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Have a great long weekend, everyone. Welcome back to the show. In an era of unprecedented LGBTQ2 plus visibility, coupled with incredible backlash coming out as a sexual minority, is still difficult. Those are the findings of a new study published in Theory and Society by sociologist Dr. Aman Gaziani and Andy Holmes. Both academics conducted in-depth interviews with 52 adult Vancouverites about their experiences coming out over the past 5 years joining me now is Andy Holmes Mr Holmes is a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto and a co-author of the study Andy thank you for joining us today
5: Hi my pleasure to be here uh,
0: this study is very interesting uh when one thinks of coming out you would assume that you know coming out in the 70s and 80s and even 90s uh would be a lot more difficult than coming out in 2023 uh Talk to me a little bit about the complexity uh, of this study, and and sort of what you learned.
5: Yeah, so study, uh, and as you mentioned, you know, coming out in the nineteen you know eighties, for instance, uh, was a more challenging time than it uh, is perhaps to come out today. Well, actually, what we're finding right now is we're in this really interesting moment where there's unprecedented levels of social support uh, towards being LGBTQ2+, but also at the same time, a lot of social backlash. Uh, for instance, right now in Canada, there's 1 million people uh, who are age 15 or older. That's about 4% of the population who identifies as LGBTQ2+. So for all of those individuals, they are going to or have had to come out at some point. So what we found was coming out is kind of characterized by what we're calling ambivalence or mixed feelings. Essentially, what we found is coming out uh, is is both a remarkable big deal, but also not really a big deal for some people. And we kind of tried to make sense of that complexity of coming out with a non-heterosexual identity in this particular moment right now.
0: So are people still very much hesitant in coming out then because of As you say, it may not be a big deal, but the broader culture wars and societal uh, pushback uh, in an era of social media, an era of political polarization, uh, may be smaller, but it is incredibly. uh, It can it it can have a significant impact on an individual.
5: Absolutely, coming out is still a big deal for a lot of people. Um, You know, the the analogy that I often make is I, I. you know i would say most straight people don't often think about having to come out because they don't really see their sexual orientation uh be a big part of their identity and for a lot of uh lgbtq2 plus people uh there's kind of a similar thing happening where some people are saying they don't want it to be a big part of their identity but because other people make it a big part of their identity for instance like if people are being homophobic you know suddenly coming out is this really important matter so for instance, you know, some people might say coming out today might be really easy for people who are uh, of a younger generation, for instance, who might be more socially tolerant, but then they might have, you know, family members or other people who are from a different generation who, who might not be as accepting. So, you know, right now that that would create, you know, this kind of mixed feeling of like how do we kind of come out essentially when there's, conflicting levels of social support.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Do, do Pride celebrations, like we're seeing this week and this weekend, do they help?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think Pride celebrations do help. Uh, and what we mean by help here is if, if this is meaning, you know, showing social acceptance, showing a sense of community. So for instance, you know, uh, Pride parades, what uh, like, which are happening in Vancouver soon, uh, will remind people that it is safe to be LGBTQ2+. But we also found something a little surprising. Uh, in moments of uh, Pride celebrations, it can also be sometimes uh, challenging for some people to come out. So we actually found that, for instance, uh, some people who uh, are bisexual, who are in relationships that might look straight, so for instance, uh, a woman who's in a relationship with a man, uh, might find it really uncomfortable. So we heard someone we interviewed who said something along the lines of, I've heard people at Pride Parade say, I don't want straight people here, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this should be, a, uh, you know, you talk about like culture wars, for instance, like this should be an LGBTQ2 plus So our participant said, um, her name was Silky, and she said, do I need to wear a shirt that says I'm bisexual on it? So, you know, Pride can be also a moment of, of, of a little bit of, uh, attention, you know, about coming out uh, for, for some people, for instance, who are bisexual.
0: What can people do to support individuals wanting to come out today?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, you know, uh, I think people should understand that there's a diversity of coming out experiences. So, for instance, for any parents uh, who might have a kid who, who has recently come out, I think it's really important to understand that uh, there isn't really... Uh, an easy narrative to follow now. It's not like it's completely accepting or uh, completely nonchalant, not a big deal. It's kind of both and neither at the same time, you know. So, for instance, um, a parent might think, you know, I have to be really, really, really supportive for my kid and make it a big deal to show that I care. But, you know, some people might not want that because they don't really see their sexual orientation be a big deal. On the other hand, some people, you know, do consider... uh, uh, there's sexual orientation to be a really uh, important part of their identity. So uh, coming out might really require a lot of support. So, you know, that's kind of where we're in this really interesting moment of time where, you know, to go back to what I was saying, we're in this kind of unprecedented moment of lots of social acceptance, but also still some backlash.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it was a fascinating study. Andy, thank you so much for your time today.
5: Thank you so much, Jeff.
0: This week is Pride Week here in Vancouver. And, of course, uh, the Pride Festival will be busy this weekend as well with the uh, parade uh, on August 6th. Always a great time here uh, in Vancouver during Pride Week. You know, when you think about Pride Week, there's lots to celebrate. we got to remind ourselves, uh, despite all that political progress uh, on in Canada and in the U.S. as well, there's lots of troubling backlash as well in Vancouver, violent, anti-trans, hate crimes, have been on the rise for a few years. And in the B, in the U.S., state legislatures there have introduced 525 anti-LGBTQ plus bills just this year alone. So there's lots to talk about. Now, you get that term or the acronym being used uh, and before it was used to be LGBTQ. Uh, now it is Two-Spirit LGBTQ+. IA+. plus, uh, Jerry Mayor Judson joins us. And I want to talk to you about this uh, um, because I think it's very important. Can I walk you through some of the letters yes. and you can walk me through what some of them mean?
3: Absolutely. Okay. Let's do I, it. I appreciate you I doing that. I love that. that. Uh,
0: so it's, it's two S, so mm-hmm. two spirit. Yes. Uh, what does that mean, two spirit?
3: So that's like an English word to capture um, more traditional Indigenous notions of gender identity. It's not really for non-Indigenous people to use. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a drag artist from Saskatchewan, Shelle is on LaRue. She was on Canada's Drag Race, and she performed pretty well. And um, they identify as two-spirit, for example. It just means that there might be male and female aspects to your spirit, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, whatever.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we go to LGBTQ, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's queer, Yes. How is that different from what I've just described from the other letters? You betcha. So
3: queer is, uh, as you know, reclamatory because you grew up a little bit before I did. And I'm sure you might be familiar with using queer in a bad way. Yep. Um, But what the community has done is like we just kind of use it as a catch all. Because um, the acronym, it's I mean, I'll, it's unwieldy. So uh, queer, queer is fine. If you we just yeah, use it to describe ourselves. And then um, if there is a letter, if there's an identity that's not in the acronym, you can use queer for that as okay. well. Yeah, it's so a catch-all. That is,
0: it's a catch-all, uh, and it could describe the folks that we've just been talking totally. about. Totally. Okay. So the other one is, the Q also stands, not just queer, but questioning. Exactly. So that, I guess, is self-explanatory. You're yes. not sure?
3: J- exactly. You, just, you might be, yeah, you're not quite set on a particular identity, and it could be a temporary label that you have for yourself, or it could be something that you just stick with if you if you don't feel like affixing yourself to a particular label.
0: And then you have I, which is intersex. What intersex. Does that mean?
3: so that yeah I've been answering this one in the office a fair bit today too so uh, because it's been what we've been talking about it's been up on my computer screen so um, this is for people whose biological sex might fall outside of what is typically categorized as male or female so they're born that way and they could have perhaps some different chromosomes it could be like an XXY situation Mm -hmm. Um, you could have different sort of internal or external reproductive organs you could have ovaries inside or ovaries outside or test it's a a whole bunch of variances that might okay. not fall into traditionally male or female. And why I think we're seeing like with the, the sort of the in- inclusion of the eye in this acronym is because these people have been, I'm going to use heavy finger quotes is like mm-hmm. surgically corrected mm-hmm. by, um, historically by the parents like at birth or when they're really little and then they might feel forced into one gender or another. So there's been more acceptance of like, you can leave your body alone if there's nothing wrong with it. So yeah. Okay. That's and then, and
0: then, so we're at, uh, a yes. for asexual. What Precisely. Is
3: that These folks don't really experience uh, sexual attraction as, as someone who does is this. Oh, I think it's allosexuals. Yeah. That's the opposite of asexual is allosexual. Uh-huh. Um But yeah, they just like, don't feel that particular brand of butterflies about anybody. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah.
0: And then we have the plus, which I'm told it uh, represents pansexual, agender, Gender, queer, bigender, gender gender variant, pangender. gender
3: Yes. And all, all that and, and so much more. It's, uh, it's kind of, I call it like the et cetera. It's like you are very much included in the plus, even if you don't have your own specific letter represented. It's just, and it's got like non-binary folks as well are in there. It's mm-hmm. just everybody else that would like to also, that also identifies maybe as queer, say. Could that grow well, you know, <laughs> it curious. very well could. There could be, I think I've given, I think I've issued the longest version of the acronym, but uh, yeah, I mean, it probably could depending on who you <laughs> ask. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm really glad
0: we were able to talk about this. Now, your pronouns, mm-hmm. are they, them?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, them, they, she also, cause she is fine. I look pretty feminine. So yes. yeah, totally. I so, uh,
0: so in your case, when we're on air yeah. or even off air, mm. uh, the proper pronoun is they, mm-hmm. she,
3: yeah, so, either one I could use. Yes, you totally could. Like, I prefer gender-neutral pronouns. However, it's like uh, ordering pancakes and getting waffles instead. Waffles are totally fine. It's just, like, not what I ordered, but I will still eat the waffles and I will enjoy the waffles. <laughs> why,
0: and, and for you, why, I mean, I think this is an important conversation to have because we mm-hmm. don't talk about it enough, certainly not on air. Um, in regards to pronouns, mm-hmm. why are you comfortable with they, she? Like, why is that important for you?
3: It's just uh, sort of, a, I kind of extend it as a professional Courtesy to tell mm-hmm. folks who like might not be comfortable using gender neutral pronouns or might not be super experienced that, like, I am not going to be mad if you see my feminine appearance and you say she, like, that is fine with me. It takes me, it doesn't upset me, it just takes me a second to realize that it is me you're talking to or talking about. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me, Jerry, she, for sure. I've done that, yeah,
0: I've done that. Um, you know, Everyone in the has. office, in the <laughs> office, really, right? oh, yeah. And uh, I think I've done it on air a couple of times too in yeah. the last little while and I kind of correct myself, yeah. but I can say they or sorry, they are she.
3: Yeah. Totally fine. Okay. They is preferred. And if you do, like, if you actually do legitimately mess up someone's pronouns, if they exclusively go by they, them, or, um, and you, and you give them a gendered pronoun, just like correct yourself and move on. There's like no need to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Cause it's like, then it's a whole thing. If you just say, uh, they, oh, she, mm, they, and then move on. It's all there good.
0: Is, there is a give and take, right? At yeah. the end of the day, out, out of respect and and you want to be tolerant. I, I just find where the culture wars are today. You can't Ugh. even talk, talk to each other, uh, in a way that says, okay, why, should it, why do you prefer to be called this or, or, or and just to learn some of these n- names that we're talking mm-hmm. about, like we're almost afraid to say, Hey, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Walk me through this. Yeah. Cause I want to
3: learn. <laughs> right. Cause you're scared on both sides of like not understanding and hostility. And, and cause yeah, it's, it's rare that sort of both sides get to come together. Not even that we're on different sides cause we're not. No. But, uh, yeah, just the, the honest conversations with understanding on both ends. Cause I think people who are not of that community
0: really want to know. And sometimes I think are afraid to ask, yes. uh, afraid to uh, seem, you know, intolerant for sure uh, and not sensitive. And so appreciate your time talking about this with me today. I'm <laughs>
3: happy I to anytime.
0: <laughs> That's our Jerry Merritt Judson.